Welcome to the High Fidelity Podcast. I am your host, Bridget Conry, coming to you from the dialed studio at Hula on the shores of beautiful Lake Champlain in Burlington, Vermont. In this episode, we welcome back Dave Silberman, the High Bailiff of Addison County, cannabis attorney, and co-founder of Flora Cannabis in Middlebury, Vermont's first licensed adult-use cannabis retailer. Back in March, Dave walked us through the cannabis bills that were winding their way through the Vermont State House. Today, he gives us the lowdown on the wins, the losses, and what advocates will be fighting for in the 2024 legislative session. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Hello and welcome back. Before we dive into our conversation with Dave, there have been a couple key updates since this conversation was originally recorded on July 5th. In the July 19th Cannabis Control Board meeting, the board heard public comment for the final time on their proposed rule changes before they get sent for review and approval by LCAR, the Legislative Committee on Administrative Rules. In our last conversation with CCB Compliance Director Carrie Jagir, And in our conversation here with Dave, we discussed some of the proposed rule changes to Rule 2.2.4 specifically, the rule that addresses health, safety, and sanitation. We are happy to report that in this meeting, the CCB decided to amend 2.2.4E, which would have prohibited cannabis manufacturers from producing, quote, any product that includes a nutritional supplement, drug product, or additive that may provoke drug interaction, undermine shelf stability, or suggest curative effects. This broad definition would have eliminated the ability to create formulas using other herbs and functional mushrooms. These types of products already exist in the market and are increasingly desired by consumers. The new language, which is yet to be posted, allows for these types of ingredients to be assessed on a case-by-case basis instead of an outright ban. The bad news is that the product restrictions based on time and temperature controls for safety will remain in the proposed rules. In this instance, we agree with the CCB that these types of controls need to be in place. The issue is that the Vermont Department of Health is not willing to fulfill their responsibility here because they have taken the stance that they will not license a business that also has a cannabis license. The CCB has neither the skill sets nor adequate levels of staffing to regulate commercial kitchens and the wide range of products that licensed cannabis manufacturers want to create. To learn more about this, listen to our conversation with Carrie in episode 27. Ultimately, if cannabis companies in Vermont want to build trusted brands, the health department will have to get involved. I would think that any customer walking into a cannabis retail store and buying an infused product like a gummy or a beverage is assuming that these products and the kitchens in which they are being created have been vetted by the Department of Health. And our dirty little secret here in Vermont is that they are not. All right, on to our conversation with Dave Silberman. Thanks for tuning in. Well, Dave Silberman, welcome back to the High Fidelity Podcast. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. So how was your fourth? Did you work? 
did not work on the 4th. That was, that's a first. Well, was the store open? The store was closed. It was closed. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good for you. I mean, I think that July 4th weekend or that holiday is one of the biggest sales the weekend was Weekends. The weekend was incredible. Was it like, incredible? You know, it was very busy. Yeah. Uh, the fourth itself, everyone needed a day off. And plus, you know, I go march in parades. So, oh, you do? You know, I am the high bailiff. Oh, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> that's one of your jobs. That's right. Parade walking. That's right. Smile and wave. <laughs> <laughs> that's cool. All right. Well, we brought you back because in season two, um, we had you give us kind of like what was going on in the legislature at the time, the different cannabis bills that were working their way through. And now that session is over. So you're here to let us know what we got done. But before we get into it, I'd kind of like you to give us kind of like, what, what's the temperature at the state house right now on cannabis as a whole? Yeah. You know, I mean, are, is it not a priority anymore? I'm just wondering, because now that they got legalization done? Do they kind of feel like we got our job done and we got more important things to do like childcare and housing and all of that? Yeah. I mean, I think cannabis never was really a priority for legislative leadership in any of the sessions since, you know, we really started going after this in 2016, right? right. Like we've always had those headwinds to, to counter. And I think now it's kind of the same. There are, there are people in the legislature who are uh, actively trying to help this industry grow and, you know, do the things that that it should be able to do. Yeah, um, who are those people? Because the yeah. people are the, that's what how it gets done. Sure, <laughs> it's no, the people. A, a, absolutely. You know? <laughs> so there's. I, I don't want to. You know, I, I'm not going to give you an an, an exhaustive list. Yes. Um, but I, I will say in the House, like the main player in the House is Matt Byrong, representative from Virgins, who is the vice chair of the House Committee on Government Operations and Military Affairs. Uh, and Matt is a champion for small businesses writ large. And that's how he looks at the cannabis industry. You know, small businesses that can help lift the Vermont rural economy, downtown economies. Mm -hmm. Great to work with. He gets it. He runs a small business. He's an owner of Three Squares Cafe in downtown Virginia. Oh, cool. So, so he gets what we're dealing with. He yes. understands. And so he's been a pleasure to work with. And then in the Senate, uh, Keisha Rahm, who's the chair of the Senate Economic Development Committee. When the session started last January, she got the uh, Senate leadership to give her jurisdiction in economic development over cannabis, uh, oh. which was a change because it was previously in the Judiciary Committee. But now that it's legal, it's a business, it goes into economic development in the Senate. I think that's a big positive change for us because we can start talking to them about what we need to make this business better. Yeah. Not what we need to make this business more profitable for shareholders, but how do we get more products to market? How do we reduce prices for consumers? How do we get rid of the things that are just cost right. uh, without any actual benefit? And so I think that's a very nice way to talk about this industry with legislators. And then there's a bunch of folks who are very, very helpful and too many to, to, name, to name. But those are the two key leaders that everyone know. should be, you know, thanking for the progress we made. Yeah. One of the reasons we didn't make as much progress as we had hoped in 2023 was that Senator Rahm went into labor three weeks early. Oh. And so right when her committee was about to start taking up the cannabis bill, she was no longer available, really. And, wow. and she was It's great. interesting how that, I mean, that's, yeah. life happens life and affects policy. Happens. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> it does. It's one of those things like you can't expect, right? Yes. Like she had a due date and yeah. that due date was three weeks later. And so it just, the timing didn't work great. And she was a hero. She really tried to help, you know, from the hospital bed. She was in the hospital for, for a few weeks. You know, she was trying to help how she could, but it just, it's not the same when you're not in the building. Right, right. So we weren't able to push some of the things that we were hoping to, but, uh, you know, there's mm -hmm. next year. There's right. always next year. Yeah, so you really think that if she was there, 
that some of the things that we didn't get would have gone through possibly? I think we had a legitimate shot this year at getting special events licenses, at least in a pilot program. Uh, There's a lot of desire, not just in the cannabis industry, but in the wedding planning industry, sort of tourism industry, Mm -hmm. to figure out a way to, to do safe cannabis events. You know, I think what you're seeing this summer is a bunch of people trying to figure out a way to squeeze cannabis events into the existing, you know, home grow, free giving, you know, that kind of thing. Because there is no license. Just because there's no license doesn't mean it's not happening. Exactly. You know, we'll see how that works out. Hmm. (laughs) All right. Well, what are the things that we did get done? This year, like the top ones, because some of them are kind of like administrative yeah. and some of them I don't even understand. Maybe I brought them with me <laughs> to reference, but um, what are the top ones that are going to make have the biggest effect on operators right now? I think the number one thing we got was propagation licenses. As you know, our cultivation licenses are limited by the square foot of canopy and it doesn't distinguish between flowering canopy and vegetative canopy. Uh, and so we were able to create a new type of license that a cultivator can have as a second license or just as a standalone. It's called a propagation license. It's up to 3,500 square feet of non-flowering canopy. And the license fee is going to be just $500 a year. That's already written in law. They're going to start issuing those licenses by next summer. And it will allow the propagators to sell clones to other licensees and it'll allow them to sell seeds both to licensees and to the general public. Um, oh, wow. So that's sort of the, the foot in the door to direct to consumer sales. Right. Yeah, so when you say to the general public, that, that means they can. It doesn't mean like selling it to a retailer to get them to the general public. That means that that propagation license will be able to sell their seeds online or... Yep. Yeah, huh. online or at the farm, a farm right. stand. You wow. know, they'll, they'll have to come up with some regulations around that, and we'll see how realistic that is. I personally am quite doubtful about direct-to-consumer sales being a business strategy that will work in real life, but it's an interesting thing to think about. Right. Well, and the seed market in general, globally, is more successful than than other businesses, I think, in general, isn't it? I think there's more money to be had in seeds than there is in selling other cannabis products, but that's another show. Yeah, um, <laughs> but also, like, how much of that is money to be made in Vermont, right? Uh, right? It, yes. we're, we're a very small state, and folks have to keep that in mind when they're kind of thinking about building a business is, yeah. is what's my total addressable market, and can I actually make money? Right, um, but I think the long-term vision on that is that you know, Vermont has a lot of growers who think that they're really growing amazing cannabis and that maybe eventually when they can sell to the general public, even outside of outside of state, that there might be a demand for that, for Vermont genetics. Uh, you know, there is an interstate market for beer and, uh, you know, Hill, Farm, Hill Farmstead does a, you know, amazing business to tourists and, right. and shipping. So uh, maybe that can also be true for cannabis. Right. Time will tell. <laughs> All right, so propagation license. Another nice one that I think cultivators will like is the reduction in local control. I would call this the Charlotte provision. The CCB is now allowed to ignore towns when the CCB determines that those towns are exceeding their legislative authority. Charlotte was basically trying to block outdoor growers from putting seeds in the ground without any kind of structure at all, calling it development. And so these new rules uh, circumvent 
that kind of um, obstruction by towns yeah. and also uh, give all outdoor growers, not just tier one outdoor growers, a little bit more breathing room as an outdoor grower under this new law, sign up for the use value appraisal program, the current use, yeah. property tax reductions. Got you it. qualify for a sales tax exemption on the tractor you buy for your cannabis farm now. Mm-hmm. You know, important stuff. Yeah, those are important things. Yeah. Now, I'm glad you brought up that, Charlotte. I mean, that was a pretty contentious case. You know, I mean, basically it was, well, it sounded like there was a little bit more involved there. <laughs> that maybe he was operating a little bit outside of his license, but the CCB said, claimed they did an investigation and they thought he was operating within the confines of his license. So that's where it ended up, right? I, you know, I, I don't, I, not a client of mine. Yeah. I'm not privy to any details other than what's been reported. And, you know, all I know is it sure seems like Charlotte is anti-development and mm-hmm. anti-cannabis. Right. And those are two separate things. You know, uh, we need to allow people to farm on their land. Yes. That's just silly. Yeah. Yeah. So this new policy allows them to do that. It That's does. Good. It gives them the protection. Another nice thing, I think, for consumers is that Vermont is no longer the only state in the nation that limits edibles packages to 50 milligrams total. Yes. I think it's going to take some time for retailers to cycle through their inventory and for manufacturers to start producing the 100 milligram packs. Yeah. Um, and then there's also a question of cost, you know, and kind of do people, do consumers want to buy that much at the prices that exist t- in today's market, which are a little elevated right. uh, compared to our neighboring states? So we'll kind of see how quickly that goes into effect, but it's great to get rid of that. When I first proposed this to the legislature a year ago, a year and a half ago, Vermont was one of three states that had 50 milligrams per package mm-hmm. limit. And by the time we got around to it this year, we were standing alone. So now, <laughs> now there are none. <laughs> That's good. Well, you have, you operate a retail store. Are people buying multiple gummies at a time? And you would think that the, the 100 milligram package would have to be less. It wouldn't be double, you know, but you never know with the Vermont producers right now. I think some of their products are priced a little high. I, I think for the, the majority of casual consumers, a pack of 10 5 milligram gummies is going to last them a while. Yeah, that does we, for me. We, we certainly have, you know, a handful of consumers who come in, you know, every few weeks and buy a couple dozen packages of gummies. Right. And I love those consumers. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> but they're on the edge. Yeah. Uh, that, that's like not, not in the middle of the bell curve. Uh, yeah. I mean, I just think there's also a lot of variety that people want to try. And so, you know, do you really want to commit to 25 milligram gummies of the same thing when you could have 10 two of one type? Yeah. yeah. Two different brands, two yeah. different, you know, maybe you want one that's straight THC and one that's one-to-one with CBD or one-to-one with CBG. Yeah. And we're having more and more of that now that the market matures. You know, when we first started, it was kind of, we didn't have a lot of variety, but. Yeah. So. Yeah. There's some producers are really, you know, leaning into those minor cannabinoids. Uh, Upstate has a great gummy with THC and CBD, um, CBG. Series has their Alchemy Naturals line, really delicious stuff yeah. with lots of different cannabinoid profiles and consumers love it. Yeah. Good. I'm glad to hear that. On the non-technical side, well, I would say another important piece is that it expanded the scope of what all licensees can do. It used to be that if you were a grower and you worked with a manufacturer to make something out of your flower, so for example, to extract your flower into strain-specific vape carts, you, the grower, would not be able to take that product back from the manufacturer. You would have to have the manufacturer distribute it for you. Mm-hmm. We've changed the law now to allow the grower to take back that product and sell it to retailers directly, which I think is just fair. Right. Not yeah, everyone it's will also, want to. It's also a way to manage your inventory. 
Yeah. <laughs> Extract takes up a lot less room <laughs> than biomass. Um, and then on the medical side, a couple of important changes. One is that we lifted the sort of annual renewal requirement for most qualifying conditions. Now it's three years that you have to get a renewal, Mm -hmm. except chronic pain, where you still have to be annual, which makes no logical sense. And also chronic pain is like the number one condition qualifying people. Yeah, Yeah, it's like 72% of the people on the registry are there for chronic pain. So So it'll have limited impact. But, you know, for folks who have, you know, lifelong medical conditions, you know, for which cannabis helps. Yes, MS, things like that. They they won't need to go back to their doctor every year in order to get this form filled out, which is really just a little dehumanizing, frankly. Oh, it is, yeah. So we'll take it as a baby step. And then uh, the number of plants a medical patient can grow was increased significantly. It used to be two mature and seven immature plants. Now it's six mature and 12 immature. Right. On top of that, you can now serve as a caregiver to two patients instead of one. Right. And so if you wanted to, you know, help folks on the medical side, uh, you could grow 24 immature plants and 12 mature plants plus another 6 and 12 for yourself if you are a uh, patient as well right. as a, as a right. caretaker, a caregiver. That's a lot. That's a lot. I mean, do you think that there's a lot of medical patients that are growing that much cannabis for themselves? I mean, I grow two plants and I still have... <laughs> way more than I need. And whatever, I'm not a medical patient, so I'm not consuming as much as that. But and caregivers, it's not a business, right? I mean, they're not technically allowed to make money on it. They're not sa- they can't sell it. It's done it's a free service. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And uh, so I would suspect that, you know, this might be eyed by some people as an opportunity for diversion. Yeah. And maybe that'll happen. And yeah. if it happens and becomes a big problem, I bet the CCB will start cracking down on it. Yeah. And the state with all might... six of their staff. Yeah. <laughs> um, Five. <laughs> well, there's always the police. Yeah, uh, help us. Yeah. Um, I mean, we don't <laughs> want the police to get involved, but I just wanted to, you know, whatever. I mean, that's a lot of cannabis. Um, it's a and... lot, and you know, look, I as as a retailer, obviously, I don't want to see you know a lot of pro- proliferation of diverted cannabis or inverted from other jurisdictions. Um, You know, I think that's bad for the whole industry, not just for the bottom line of of the retail shops, but uh, for consumer trust. But, uh, you know, I want to be very sympathetic to the couple of thousand Mm -hmm. medical patients out there who have a real severe need and they should be able to get the help they need without having to pay 21% tax and, you know, whatever else. Yeah. Um, I agree. And so, you know, uh, I think let's – I'm happy that this change is in place and we'll see if it becomes a problem. Yes. If it becomes a problem, we'll figure out a way to address yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, totally. It's not going to be the main place that diversion or inversion is happening, I don't no. think. Maybe yeah. just supply some small side businesses for some Vermonters. <laughs> I think another big thing on the medical side is that the CCB now is more free to regulate medical dispensaries similarly to REC. Mm-hmm. So I think we'll see a – you know, coming together of the of the regulations, uh, it'll probably take a little bit of a while for that to uh, to happen. Yeah, I mean, the medical programs and I don't know if I want to call it dire straits right now, but the numbers have been going down consistently since 2018, when possession and home grow was allowed for adults. And this year, I think they said that they've already lost 600 registered patients since That's the end like of 15 percent. Yeah, and 100 caregivers. And so it's it's going down. And so, you know, we were talking about this ahead of this conversation right now, and I don't know what the answer is. I, I, 
I don't think that two separate programs is the answer. I do know that there are a lot of medical patients who need the supports that they get in that program right now, whether it's just increased time of quality consultation or, you know, having their, their doctor feel like it's a trusted place to have conversations about their patient's health or the products right now, quite frankly. They don't have the potency limits that we do in the adult use, and a lot of them need those higher dose products. And so all that would have to be figured out. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I just... Let's hope that the program's still going by the time at this committee that's being put in place that comes together with what the um, what the recommendations should be, which I think that their deadline for that is, what, January of 2024? That's, right. that's only six months. I mean, I, I'd like to see that conversation include the rec operators yeah. as well because I think they're part of the solution ultimately. Yeah. Um, but, but last time you were on the show when you said that you were going to be a little controversial you said that you didn't think that retailers should be able to sell the medical patients tax-free. I thought that they shouldn't allow medical patients to um, buy tax-free in rec shops if they are also going to expand the medical, the qualifying medical conditions to any qualify anything that a doctor says. Gotcha. That would be a double whammy. That yeah. would that would result in a uh, crashing of the tax uh, income for the state. I think yes. that would hurt the long-term viability. Uh, of of the industry yeah. because we won't have that tax dollars to show to the politicians as right. a reason why they should play nice with us. Right. Yeah. Very controversial. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and that's the whole, I mean, looking at it at that level, never mind just kind of like structurally and what the rules would be is that ultimately there are so many people who are using this plant for health and wellness right now, you know, or, and medically, you know, but they maybe not qualify, you know, but uh, now they're shopping in the adult use. And so wh- where do you draw that line of people who are using it medically against those who are not, yeah. you know, and these people don't get charged tax and the others don't? That's really tricky. We have a large percentage of our customers come in talking about pain or sleep or anxiety, and we try to help them the best we can, you know, to yeah. our ability. But those are medical patients right. in a rec shop. Yeah. Um, so we'll see. The other big thing in 270 uh, now Act 65, something we talked about last time I was here, was the uh, liquor and lotto tobacco oh, licensing. yeah, yeah, this uh, is your, your issue. So, yeah, I mean. <laughs> Let her rip. Let her rip. What did you get? You uh, got what you wanted, right? I won. <laughs> <laughs> Congratulations. That's a good Thank one. You. It was worth fighting for. It was. So now uh, if you're a licensed cannabis retailer that does not sell tobacco yes. uh, or nicotine products. Which you, you can't. I mean, it's illegal to... Can you sell tobacco? You could with a tobacco license. Oh, no Um, kidding. But if you are a cannabis retailer that does not sell tobacco, you can now sell pipes without a tobacco license, which is important because Mm -hmm. uh, liquor and lotto are cops and we don't want cops in our stores. Yay, win. Yes, Uh, good. And we also got rid of the 92% wholesale tax, Mm -hmm. not only on the vaping liquid, but on vaping devices as well which means that now finally we can sell things like packs or you know mm-hmm. other herbal vaporizers or electronic devices for concentrates um, at a reasonable price at, it's competitive yeah. with other markets yeah previously yeah. if we were to sell those if we were to pay the wholesale tax and sell them at the same price that they're available online we would have to sell them at a loss right right and so i think that was new i think the last time we were talking about it it was only looking at like the liquid not being taxed, but the the hardware was going to. So we got both. Yeah. Good. Yeah, that was a nice little win. Nice. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it's going to make a big difference in terms of, you know, sales or tax revenues to the mm-hmm. state, but it's just the right thing to do. Yeah, I agree. Um, so that's what we got. Awesome. So we started with the good news. <laughs> 
What didn't we get and well, why? We didn't get delivery. We didn't get events. We didn't get on-site consumption. And we didn't really move the conversation forward. We didn't get the potency caps lifted. Mm-hmm. And the main reason we didn't get any of those things and the main reason we probably will not get most of those things next year, I think we might be able to get events, is Phil Scott. Yeah, Folks in the cannabis industry, you got to stop voting for Phil Scott. <laughs> Phil Scott is anti-you. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, he let this bill pass. He let Act two, or Act sixty five pass without his signature, which is what he allowed the legalization bill to do the same. Yeah, and so we will not. We will not get delivery while Phil Scott is in office. We will not get social consumption with Phil Scott in office. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it just we will not get potency caps lifted with Phil Scott in yeah. office. When um, is he up for reelection again? Every two years. Next year. Yeah. Yeah. Do the Democrats or the progressives have anybody who has a chance of beating him? Long sigh. (laughs) (laughs) I take that as a no. (laughs) Um, So, I mean, we have a supermajority in the legislature, and they were were able to veto or override a lot of the governor's veto. Why did they think they couldn't do that on the cannabis? Do we not have enough people in the legislature who are willing to fight for it? Yeah, I mean, you know, cannabis is just not a priority item. And to override a veto, you know, you need legislative leadership in both houses to say, yeah, this is worth, you know, bringing people back during the off session and and really fighting for. And, uh, you know, I just don't see this industry as something that rises to that level of awareness. Uh, Plus, there are still uh, not as many as as previous years, but there are still some Democrats in in the legislature who just are not comfortable with cannabis, mm. and because they're afraid of for kids or the possible crime that they think is associated with it. Bridget, what are drugs they? are bad. I, <laughs> it just feels like we've come such a long way, you but know, that that stigma are just lazy sticks. And drugs are bad. Yeah. And what about yeah. the brain? And what about the kids? And what yeah. about safety? And what about the roads? And are there is there going to be blood in the streets? And we yeah, just it's still the same the stuff. Same it's BS the same stuff. It's been the same over. thing. Yeah, got it. So we still got a ways to go. Yeah. We need to get fresh blood in the legislature as well, not just in the governor's uh, seat. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of that. And, and look, we've made a lot of progress. You know, there's been a, a generational turnover in the legislature. So there's a lot less opposition in the legislature, but there's still some and they're still, you know, well-placed to, you know, thwart our, our, our desires. Um, you know, that but, tax revenue doesn't get them excited. I mean, how, how much have we do know? Like, it's not that... We don't get that information very much. So you can um, you can go to the tax department's website monthly, about forty five days after the end of the month, yeah. uh, and get a, a report of how much tax revenue has come in from cannabis excise tax. Gotcha. Um, what is it approximately right now? Do you know? I haven't I, I looked think in we, a while. The last time I looked, I think it was April sales. I believe were about six million dollars statewide. So it's, sales, sales, yeah. 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 Um, I, I think that number's right. Uh, so it's not like huge, and you know that's Vermont small. And I just don't see a really great argument for, oh, we need to lift the potency cap on concentrates because then we could, you know, have more tax revenues from concentrates. And then you really dig into it. Like what's concentrates ever going to be solid, you know, solid concentrates as a percent of the market? Four percent, five percent at best? Yeah, I don't know about in Vermont. I mean, it's over 10 percent in more mature markets. Well, including vapes, which are not subject to the to the potency cap to begin with. So if you're just looking at like hash, yeah. you know, sold outside of a vape cartridge, 
you're probably really a couple of percent. And, you know, what are you going to get? I mean, another $10,000 a year of tax revenue yeah. into the state? It's just not, that's yeah. not a winning argument. Yeah, yeah, the fear is more powerful. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. people are really afraid. Yeah. You know, of God, I don't know what, like people getting too stoned and falling asleep. I'm yeah. not sure. Yeah. For I believe that they should be in, a, in the regulated market because I think they're safer when they're in the regulated market. But on the other side, I can understand, you know, having some concerns. I mean, cannabis has been part of the traditional healing systems for so long, but in must, much less potent forms, you know, and mostly in the form of flour, not in all of these concentrates that we have today or we vape them. So we really don't know long term what some of the health impacts could be, you know, and I think that the data and again, whatever, I think they should be in the legal market, but just devil's yeah. advocate here. And just we don't know if those concentrates are more behaviorally addictive, you know, than this 9% number that we've been working with that was really based off of flour that was less potent and not these 90% sure. things. Sure. I, I think, you know, there's there's a lot of truth to what you're saying. There's also, you know, a lot of human experience with hashish. Um, yeah, well, that's true. Yeah. Um, so I don't think there's much physical danger, you know, psychological uh, maybe, you know, the, the, the sort of psychological dependency, yeah. that could be a factor, but these products are out there. Yeah, no, I know. They, they they're there. not hard to make at home. Yeah, I know. They um, should be in the legal market. Yeah. yeah. We should be testing things and making sure that they're clean and, yeah. and safe. Uh, that's the best way to control for the risks. Yeah. All right. So next session, which starts in January, right? Correct. What do you, do you have any hopes for one of these things that didn't pass passing this time and I think we're going to make another really strong attempt at special events mm-hmm. and maybe on-site consumption. Yeah. Um, we'll kind of see how that's playing out in other states. You know, it's really only beginning to roll out in Nevada and, and Colorado. Yeah. So we don't have a lot of, you know, solid experience to share with legislators who are just inherently afraid of their own shadows. Right. But didn't the CCB as part of their report that they were required to submit to the legislature on social equity, like with the state of social equity in the program right now, didn't they recommend that home delivery license and a, a on-site consumption license be part of the solution there yeah. uh, in order to provide more business opportunity for the people who would qualify for social equity? Uh, I, they were looking at delivery for the business opportunity and they were looking at uh, social consumption as a way to give people who do not own their own homes mm-hmm. a legal place to consume. Where right now, unless you unless your landlord has written into your lease permission for you to consume cannabis, technically you're not allowed to consume cannabis there, yeah, and that could, could be a crime. Your, right, and that's silly. Yeah, it is silly. Or or to grow, you know, we want to give people a legal place to consume uh, without fear of arrest or 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 civil penalty, and we need to find a way to do that. Uh, whether that's social consumption, whether that's revising the rules on public consumption, maybe we can allow joints to be smoked wherever cigarettes are allowed to be smoked. Right. Maybe we like can. Like New York. Yeah. So many New Yorkers, though, complain about the fact that New York City just smells like weed oh, right man. now. You know, and that's not attractive to a lot of people. But again, I'm all for more access I've and all that stuff. But. <laughs> I've lived in New York. And let me tell you. Weed is a much better smell than some of the other things. Yes, that's true. In New York in August, and it's just like piss and garbage. <laughs> we'll be right back after a short break. 
Hey there, it's me again with a friendly reminder to follow our lovely little show wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're really digging what you hear, like the show, review it, and share it with your friends. We'd really appreciate it. Take care, and thanks for listening. now move to the rule changes that are being proposed right now. And the one that's most interesting to me, uh, there's quite a, a bunch of changes that are happening, but 2.2.4 is getting a lot of tension right now. And part of it is because I guess some of the changes kind of just popped up recently and most people didn't have a chance to react to them. And so talk about what those are what yeah. the changes are and why they're concerning. And I know that you've got certain clients where they would affect them quite a bit. So Yeah, it might drive some people out of business entirely. So the CCB is proposing to ban certain products. I'm not really sure why they feel, A, they have the legislative authority to do this, or B, why they think now is the right time to go about doing this. But, you know, they seem to have a lot on their plate, and maybe they could concentrate on some of those things, like fixing the product registration system, mm-hmm. you know. Maybe, you know... Getting the inventory tracking system up and operational, not just for cultivators. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, I'm I'm not here to criticize the CCB. I love the CCB. Yes. (laughs) They got their hands full. They got their hands full. They're understaffed. And they are definitely understaffed. But some of these rules, uh, 2.2.4 in particular, it really came out of left field. I'm not sure what they're thinking. They want to ban any product, basically, that requires refrigeration. Uh, for shelf stability. And the reason that they've sort of enunciated so far is that, well, uh, the health department is refusing to do inspections of cannabis licensees for food safety standards. And so we don't have the staff to do it. So we can't do it and neither can you. Not that there's been any complaints of, you know, any kind of foodborne illness from cannabis products Mm -hmm. just because they're I guess, afraid of it, maybe one day possibly happening. Right. So anything frozen, anything requiring refrigeration for shelf stability would not be allowed. They, for other reasons, uh, are going to ban any products containing meat or dairy. That kind of makes a little more sense to me as a lawyer. Uh, the dairy part, there's a, there's a conflict with state law because state law relies on the federal definitions and under the analogous federal provision, adding cannabis to a dairy product contaminates that dairy product. And so uh, under state law, you can't sell contaminated dairy products. So no ice cream. Right. Well, you know, the Department of Agriculture or dairy, under, which is under ag, they came and inspected our facility on the, when I was medical that side, serious, yeah. yeah, on the medical side, because we were I think the words that they use were adulterating dairy by infusing cannabis into cream uh, for like caramels or butter that we sold. And so they allowed it there, you know, and we were happy for the inspection because it was just another form of like regulation coming in being like your kitchen's clean, (laughs) you know, and you're doing things properly. Um, So I don't don't understand why they couldn't do that on the rec side. You know, I would encourage you to give a call to Allison Eastman, the Deputy Secretary of Agriculture, lovely person. I've had a conversation or two with her about this. Um, You know, I don't think she's trying to throw up roadblocks. Mm -hmm. I think she's just trying to navigate this minefield. And um, 
you know, I'd, lo- I'd love to hear her expand on, on those things. Yeah. This is my hot topic because <laughs> yeah. I think the health department needs to be involved uh, in do. overseeing cannabis manufacturing in these commercial kitchens and in these home kitchens even. You know, I just think that it, it's, it's important for public safety and they won't do it. And it's why this is not happening. I mean, the store that we want to open, we wanted to even just have non-cannabis infused refrigerated products that people could like grab and go, you know, food. Technically, we're not allowed to do that because the health department will not regulate a company that has a cannabis license. And so having a refrigerator like that with a non-shelf stable food means that they would have to come in and make sure that we were monitoring the temperature in that refrigerator to the the safety zone, right. you know? And so that's what this is Which all is about. Which is not you know? that complicated, really, but no. it requires somebody going out there and checking, yes. right? Because they don't want to rely on self-certification. And they should do it because they're the Department of Health, and yes. this is a matter of public health. And shame on you, Dr. Levine, for being so anti-drug yeah. that you can't get your head out of the sand and protect Vermonters. Yeah. You're talking about a third of Vermonters use cannabis let them use it safely. Yes. Do you this think, is another Phil Scott thing. Yes, I know, because they're connected. Um, so do you think this is the way? I mean, the CCB will talk about it, the way that they're positioning is this, is that even like kind of outside of the refrigerated freezer thing, which is kind of like the smallest piece in this, do you think that this is their way of putting pressure or highlighting the issue that this really should be a health department thing and by kind of saying like, hey, we don't have the staff or the skill sets to really regulate those temperature and time controls at a retail store or in a commercial kitchen where these products are being made. So let's try to make it an issue so the health department has to come in or you don't think I it's mean, that thought I, that far ahead. maybe they, I, I think you know the folks at the CCB are actually like really smart and mm-hmm. they get politics they've been involved uh, you know James Pepper Bryn Hare uh, have been involved in legislative politics and, yeah. and government uh, affairs for a long time uh, so I think they know what they're doing yeah but I just wish they weren't doing it in a way that you know was harming Small businesses. Yes, it's not pro-business at all. The other thing they want to ban is anything that has like a a supplement. And any cannabis product that incorporates anything that is also sold as a dietary supplement. Right. Which is, Uh, that's not a health department thing. So this is a separate issue. I don't even know where that came from because... I don't know either. (laughs) They've expressed sort of two reasons for that. One is uh, they're concerned with drug interactions. And two, they're concerned, and this one was really wild, they're concerned that if you incorporate uh, certain herbal supplements, you'll be implying that the product you are selling has curative effects, which would violate the regulation against claiming that your products have curative effects. Got it. So they're worried about lawsuits, potentially? I you know, of people kind of, uh, you know, taking advantage of some of the legal gray areas that we have with cannabis. I think you should get Pepper on the show to explain himself here. (laughs) I mean, because what we're talking about are things like gummies or tinctures that might have melatonin in them or things like L-theanine or functional mushrooms like lion's mane or reishi. I mean, we already have those products in the market uh, here in Vermont, so it would require that those be taken off the shelf. But they're also widely available in every other regulated state. And that's 
I mean, that's where the market is headed. You know what I'm saying? Like long term, this is going to be like CPG products. They're going to be out there. And then the whole part about like cannabis shouldn't be separated from the other plants. <laughs> you know, as an herbalist, yeah. you know, we always put plants in formula with each other. And I get that. That's what they're talking about. Like, oh, when you do that, we don't want to be making any claims. But the herbal world can't make claims either. Right. You know, and so and, and, I think as long as you're doing it responsibly and saying traditionally used for or may, you know, instead of saying this is going to yeah. guarantee that you're going to sleep tonight. I, I think the regs are already very clear as to what you can and cannot say with respect to a product yeah. uh, and the claims that you can make. And as a cannabis business, I think everyone should be very careful about making claims about your product being able to treat a disease or cure a disease or diagnose a disease because you're going to draw the ire of the FDA and don't mess with the feds, folks. Definitely. They're not people to mess with. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's only by their grace that you are allowed to operate to begin with. Uh, <laughs> so don't draw attention to yourself. So those rules exist. I don't know why you need to ban a product because its inclusion, ban an ingredient because its inclusion might cause some people to think that you're implying a curative effect. You don't say it on the label, you don't say it on the label. Right. You know, that's just, uh, this this one defies common sense to yeah. me. Yeah, yeah. Um, and what's the likelihood that it's going to stay in there? I mean, there's a, there's public comment is open to what, July 11th? And they're going to be making a decision on this on the next board meeting, which is on the 19th. Well, that's right? what they've said. Uh, but so far, they haven't actually published the latest proposal. And I, I think this, is, this one has really taken a lot of the industry by surprise. Yeah. And I think it's not exactly in compliance with the Administrative Procedures Act. And so I, I don't know. I, I, I mean, I'm hoping that because they haven't published this, that they'll delay it at least into their August meeting, give people a chance to really think about this. Right. And, and, you know, start collaborating with the industry, which is what the CCB did so well in the first round of regulations. And I think they're sort of getting away from that a little bit. And yeah. I don't like it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we've commented on it quite a bit. I don't think it makes any sense. So, all right. Well, before we move on to some of the specific, more specific things about the market that I wanted to ask you as a retailer and just to kind of your experience with inventory tracking and all that stuff, you know, there's a lot of talk out there on the federal level about safe banking and de- rescheduling or descheduling. Are you paying attention to that at all? Or what are your thoughts on, on that and uh, how I, it might, you know, what it will really mean for? I think there's so much to pay attention to uh, for a cannabis licensee uh, in Vermont that if you are, you know, spending too much time thinking about what could happen at the federal level, you're going to miss something more important in the near term. Eventually, the feds will do something. Maybe this year they will pass the Safe Banking Act, and maybe next year that'll mean your banking fees go down from $18,000 a year to $10,000 a year. That's, you know, significant, but, you know, this is not going to solve our problems. And you heard that right, people, $18,000 a year. I mean, we're going to open up a, you know, a bank account for the retail license, and it's like $1,500 a month. Yeah. Just, just to open for, the account. For Never basic mind the fees. Checking. Yeah, I know. They, and look, the, this basic checking account doesn't even have like an online portal where you can make ACH payments. It's very bare bones. Yeah. So not great. And and that's going to continue to be a problem. Yeah. But it's, look, I mean, $18,000, nothing to sneeze at over the course of a year. But uh, in, in the course of a cannabis retailer's, you know, annual expense flow, uh, you know, you've got, 
you're probably $12,000 for insurance by the time it's all said and done. You've got, you know, your rent, you've got your, shoot, your federal income tax works out to 21% of gross margin. So, you know, you better be pricing your products right or you're not going to be able to pay your federal, federal tax bill. Yes. Um, you know, there's a lot of expenses out there and banking is, is one of them, but it, banking is not what is going to make or break this industry, I'm sorry to say. So I'll be very happy when the Safe Banking Act passes because yeah. it'll create momentum for future legislation that is more meaningful. And I'd be really happy if they include the expungement provisions mm -hmm. federally in safe banking. But it's not, Alex, safe banking is not the end game here. It's, it's you know, st step one. It's and step one, right. It doesn't address 280E, which is the big tax burden. 280E is, is yeah. a huge problem at the federal level. Yeah. And that can be addressed through descheduling or rescheduling and you know, I, I'm very much at a wait and see when it comes to the feds. Yeah. I'll react to it when I see it. And, um, you know, we'll pivot yet, yet again like we always do. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, uh, the things I've been reading lately aren't too hopeful. <laughs> that, that either one of them is going to pass this year or even in Biden's, in Biden's term right now. Yeah. Maybe a second Biden term. So, yeah, I yeah. mean, it's always a wait and see game, which is tough. Yeah. Well, you know, I know we didn't want to talk about California, but <laughs> I think California is a little bit of a bellwether for like what happens in the industry overall. And there's a lot of trouble going on there right now, just in terms of diversion. You know, there's the Glasshouse case where they're being, you know, they're one of the biggest cultivators out there in California and they're being accused of diverting, I think, twice as much as their legal inventory into the illicit market, including, you know, sending it into New York's, uh, the New York market, New York City in particular. That hasn't been confirmed. It's a case that's going to court. Herbal, which was one of the longest operational distributors out there, just went out of business because people aren't able to pay them, to pay the bills that they owed them. And so they just closed up shop. And they're talking about many businesses having to shutter this year because they've got a huge tax liability coming up uh, and they're not going to be able to pay it. And so, again, I know whatever, when you're operating in a state, you're just trying to figure out, like, how do I do what's in front of me right now? But I would think that we want to be looking at what's going on out there and how do we avoid some of those things? You know, I mean, and also like the illicit market is like twice the size of the legal market out there. They haven't been able to get that out of control. And, you know, I'm sure we have all of those factors happening in Vermont right now. We just don't know how big or what it's going to look like when things come due. But any thoughts about that? Yeah, I think California has some unique problems, you know, in the way they set up their market. It's actually very difficult to get a license in California. There was a, you know, a, a legacy market made up of rather large growers, a lot of them uh, with organized crime uh, and cross-border crime syndicates involvement. And that's a very different type of illicit legacy market than what we have here in Vermont, was predom yeah. predominantly, you know, small growers who, you know, are very much welcome into the industry here. And it's very relatively cheap and easy to get mm -hmm. a license. So, you know, that was a big factor in California, you know, just how hard it is. The way they set it up with local control in California where different municipalities can issue their own regulations and right. prevent, you know, uh, retailers but also growers from setting up. And it, it, it's a mess. Yeah. And it always has been a mess. Yeah. And, uh, you know. It, yeah, they have a lot of places that didn't opt in too, like yeah. we have here. I mean, I think it's still like 
what, 70% haven't towns, opted, yeah. Yeah, haven't opted in yet, which is an issue, but... You know, you've got concentration in the industry for yeah. in the retail space anyway. Look, I, I think Vermont is doing better than most other states uh, early on. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we... How do you know? I mean, we don't have a lot of data yet from the CCB or So, you know, like I'm, a, I'm a lawyer to a bunch yeah. of cannabis businesses, right? And I know which ones of my clients are coming in from the legacy market. And I've seen an uptick in, in new uh, licensees coming in from the legacy market. Yeah. And I think that's a positive. Mm-hmm. You know, is there diversion? Maybe. Is there inversion? Probably. Yeah. There's probably stuff from Maine coming in that yeah, we have no that. way of stopping, yeah. right? Yeah. Because, you know, how do we stop it? The, yeah. the track and trace doesn't really work. Right. Shh, don't tell anyone. <laughs> They're working on it. <laughs> I mean, that's my concern, you know, as someone who's looking to open retail. I mean, we used to, you know, we used to control the supply chain for a while because we had to. You know, we were forced to make all of our products ourselves. But then we got to work with our other partners, but we knew them, you know, in terms of the other licenses. There are only two. And yeah. now there's so many. And the inventory tracking system is, you know, still in its infant stages. I, you know, I, do we really have a handle on knowing, like, what, where the product is coming from in this market right now? Not really. You know, and again, I don't say that with... Whatever. It's what it is, you know. And so as a retailer, how do you go about knowing I, who you're working with and where the product's coming from? I mean, you know, we check the COAs and I yes. guess if you grew it in Maine and brought it here and got it tested and then, you right. know, at the as very least tested. I know that it's been tested. Right. And I don't, you know, there's no way for me to know yeah. where it comes from. I can kind of sniff out, you know, a, a shady character. Yeah. And, you know, we try to work people who are not particularly shady. So, you know, we, we have some really great cultivators that we work with and yeah. we're very happy to work with. And, and we have no reason to suspect that they're inverting. Right. Yeah. I asked Kerry, I talked to him last week for our final, our part three with him. He said that he was more worried about inversion than diversion at this point. And I believe that part of the reason why I said too is because prices in the retail market are pretty favorable compared to what's in the illicit market right now too. Sure. Um, and so they want to get their product in. I think I think folks need to recognize that, like right now, prices in Vermont are quite high. Yeah. Um, they're they're high uh, at the wholesale level, and they're high at the retail level. Yeah. And I think that you know sometimes consumers you know are, are are a little unhappy, and maybe that's causing some consumers to stay with legacy market mm-hmm. sources. But you know, there's always home grow, and there's always sharing from your friend's harvest. So yes. you know, not. People aren't trapped into an overpriced market, right? Yeah, yeah. And that does provide that competitive pressure as well. But, you know, as a retailer, when we see product coming in, you know, bulk, high-quality bulk indoor flour right now, you know, if we could get it at $2,400 a pound, I would jump all over it mm. because that is several hundred dollars below the wholesale market price right now. Right. And that fluctuates. And, you know, there are some people who, you know, have like the last pound and maybe you can, you know. Anyway, yes. It, you know, it's interesting. It. <laughs> you know what's interesting to me about this whole conversation? And actually, I remembered what I, the thing that Carrie said that was interesting. I'm going to say it right now so I don't forget is that he said that, that cultivators are actually reporting on each other in terms of inversion. And they're doing it based on the fact that they think that the terpene results on certain flower are showing that that, that cultivar couldn't have grown in Vermont which I thought was really interesting and pretty detailed. You know, like, do we really know, you know, that a certain terpene profile couldn't be here? I don't know. I thought that was a little bit weird. But, I mean, interesting. I mean, I know they do it with wine and stuff, but 
Anyhow, you haven't heard that conversation going on. I have not heard that. I, I've certainly heard that there are um, licensees ratting on other licensees yeah. uh, in the cultivation space. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of people, you know, who have suspicions about other people and they're trying to, you know, report. Uh, we see a lot of people putting posts on Instagram that then get reported by other licensees to the CCB for investigation and you know, I, I wish people would stop that and, you know, maybe act a little more collaboratively yeah. with one another. We're a very small industry. Yes. Uh, I think generally people are trying to follow the rules. I think so too. Uh, people are really trying their best. I think there's a lot of space yeah. for everyone here. Yes. Um, yeah. Focus you know. on your own business unless it's really egregious and like possibly harming yeah. people somehow. Yeah. So, but getting back to the price thing I was talking about, it's just, you know, you want prices to be lower, right? I mean, customers want prices to be lower. I, I would but love to be producers able to. don't want prices to be lower, <laughs> but they're going to get lower, you know. And they, then, they will, and <laughs> and you know, be careful what you wish for because you want prices lower, but you don't want them too low. Yes. And you know, if we end up with a, a fall harvest that everyone brings to market at the same exact time and it's a glut, you know, you could see a collapse even in the indoor flower market because, you know, they are competing goods. Yeah. And, you know, you don't want growers going out of business. Yeah. And I don't know what the, you know, price elasticity of demand for cannabis is. We'll find out soon enough, I suppose. Yeah, but, you know, if my prices were halved, I don't think that my sales would double to make up for it. And I don't, you know, uh, I, I, my, I have fixed costs, right? right? Insurance, banking, labor mm -hmm. is a big, big cost. Yeah. Um, and we need to pay th those costs. And, you know, you get a big enough drop in your you know, gross profits at the end of the day, which is sales minus cost of goods sold. And, you know, some people are going to go out of business. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't, you know, we, the conversation in Vermont is that we want to have, we want to um, support small business. And so we have all these small cultivators. Again, I think like 72% of the cultivation licenses right now are tier one. Yeah. And so their costs are going to be higher. So their prices are going to be higher. And so like, we're going to have a lot of supply if we continue to have unlimited licenses, and hopefully they're successful. So the supply will go up, which means that prices should come down, but their costs really aren't going to go down that much because they can't scale. That's right. <laughs> you know, and so it kind of doesn't make sense in a way. And I mean, ultimately, like if this was, if we didn't have the prohibition that we have and, and the way we have the regulated market around cannabis, cannabis wouldn't be so expensive as an herb because it's not hard to grow. It's not scarce, you know, <laughs> you know, other herbs cost like $2 an ounce, you know, that grow as prolifically yeah. as cannabis could if it was let to be, you know. Well, you, you, have, um, you have Dan Pomerantz on a few episodes ago and he, <laughs> he said something that I thought was, you know, true and funny. It's like it'll grow in the cracks in the sidewalk. Yes. Uh, it won't grow beautifully, uh, but it'll grow. And I mean, for extraction, yeah. you know, you don't really need big, beautiful plants no, for extraction. So, yeah, it's it's a little scary to think about, you know, the economics of cannabis, right? Yeah. As your scale grows, you get economies of scale. Your production costs on the margin go down. And the bigger you are, the lower your marginal costs are. Now, obviously, there's these step functions in this in this formula because you end up having to build another warehouse or another, you know, whatever. Yeah, yeah, but uh, it's business 101. Yeah. With scale done properly your costs go down and you can charge less for your products. Um, to a degree. And yeah. then, you know, and we see that, right? Like California with big producers has lower prices than Vermont with small producers. Now, Vermont producers can scale to a degree. 
when you cap out uh, uh, of your 1,000 square foot tier one license, you can get a tier two license. Mm-hmm. It doesn't cost that much more. Right. And you can go up to uh, 2,500 feet or 5,000 feet or 10,000 feet in the tier four. Yeah. And so you can grow and year after year, I would encourage people who are finding success to think about that. And, right. you know, what is the investor that would be needed to make that be a profitable expansion? And I think, you know, if we can control that growth and let it kind of come organically as opposed to opening it up as a free-for-all where, you know, you know these big multi-state operators ooh, come in and, and buy, you know, set up multiple grows yeah. that are very, very large. Yeah. Now, uh, it's I, just not going to happen, by the way. We're too, uh, and, and we're too we, small a market. Don't we want a Vermont company to become a, a multi-state operator? Shouldn't that be a goal? I would love it. You know, and, but and we look, can't I, let somebody else in. But we'll let a Vermont company uh, applaud it if they can take their. I don't state. have any issue at all with somebody coming in from out of state and setting up a shop here and hiring Vermonters and producing great product and selling it in Vermont. Yeah. I think that is great. That's called investment in Vermont. Exactly. Like that is good. That yeah. is jobs. That's revenue. It's good. That's a good thing. And we've set up this law to limit, uh, you know, any one person's ability to control this market. We, Aside from the one tier one, tier five indoor grower that there is in Vermont, there will not be another because yeah, it's who is that? Is that Satori? That is Satori. Yeah, mm-hmm. It's in your county. Yeah, in, in Middlebury. Uh, look, a great employer. Mm-hmm. They've taken a warehouse that was uh, an environmental disaster zone, Brownfield, like yeah. EPA Brownfield, done amazing re- uh, restoration work to it, remediation work, spent millions of dollars cleaning that place up turning into a state-of-the-art facility. They employ, geez, their parking lot is full of employee cars. I drive by there a lot. I live in Middlebury. They are an economic engine. There's nothing wrong with that. And they're producing, by the way, bomb weed. Yeah, I've heard that. I've heard that from a few people. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think that this whole, you know, they just closed the window on tier fives because of the concern that they're going to create so much product and make it hard for all the other ones. But doesn't that now give a competitive advantage to the people who have a tier five right now? Oh, they're going to be the only ones who ever have it. No one's, know? I guarantee you that <laughs> nobody in this world is happier about tier five licenses being closed than, than the, the tier, five tier five licenses. I mean, that makes no sense. I don't know. Yeah. Well. Uh, look, I will, I will say, you know, we have caps on the size and that is good. I, I think, you know, we need small scale in mm-hmm. Vermont because we are a small market mm-hmm. uh, and we need to be cognizant and aware and and figure out a way to deal with the potential for oversupply this fall and every fall Mm -hmm. or or else a lot of people are going to lose a lot of money Mm -hmm. but we wanted to give everybody that chance (laughs) so come december take a look at craigslist for used growing gear i mean you don't want to know i'm not laughing to because i want that for anybody but that's you know it's Oversupply is going to happen. It, it's you know, just how in, it happens, I guess, is what Vermont's trying to every state, manage. Yeah. Right. And some people are going to figure out that they're actually not good at this. Yeah. And, you know, okay, you gave it a shot. Maybe you've made your money and maybe not. Yeah. Uh, that's, you know, free market capitalism. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we should end it there because you've been generous with your time today. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's always a pleasure. I feel like we could talk about a whole bunch of things. Same. So... Yeah, really great information for our listeners. So thanks for coming up from Middlebury, and we'll see you down at Flora in the near future. Yeah, look forward to it.
All right, that'll do it for this episode. Thanks go out to my creative crew at High Fidelity, Olaf Willoughby and Shane Lynn, and to the team at Syntax in Motion for producing this show. A special shout out to Will Davis, my sound engineer. Thanks to you for listening to us today. If you enjoy what you heard, subscribe on our website, hifivt.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Better yet, like, share, rate, or leave a comment. You can request topics or interviews for our show by emailing us at bewell at We'd love to hear from you. Until then, be well and have fun out there.